Would you turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 28? We'll be there briefly, then we'll go to Judges chapter 2 after that. While you're finding Deuteronomy 28 and thinking about Judges 2, let me read you from Proverbs 3. Got all that? I have some good news to read to you. Proverbs 3, verse 11, my son... Do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Let me read that to you again. Very good news from Proverbs 3. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. The author of Hebrews quotes these verses. In Hebrews chapter 12, and then he does an exposition, a teaching on these verses. And the author says, beginning in Hebrews 12, 7, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. In other words, the Lord Jesus Christ conforming you to his image through discipline, through difficulties, through trials, through tribulation. Well, tonight we're continuing our series we started before Christmas, Backstage Before Bethlehem looking at the interventions of the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. And I originally was only going to preach four or five of these, but I had done a series on Satan last year, and I didn't want to preach fewer messages on Christ than we did on Satan. And so we decided to go ahead and do every major appearance of the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. And so we'll finish that up this spring. And tonight we're going to see that the intervention of the angel of the Lord happens as it happens almost every time in the Old Testament in the life of Israel. And it has one singular purpose tonight, and that is to announce coming discipline. To announce that discipline is on its way. Now, it has been a number of weeks since we were examining the angel of the Lord, and maybe some of you weren't even here for that. And so, we'll get a good run here to finish this series all the way before Resurrection Sunday. But I want to briefly review the angel of the Lord, just to make sure we're on the same page. The angel of the Lord is not just an angel, The word angel just means messenger, and it can be a human messenger, certainly can be the angelic type of messenger. But in this case, the angel of the Lord specifically is what is called a theophany, an appearance of God. More specifically, a Christophany, an appearance of the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God in visible and bodily form prior to the birth of Christ. The angel of the Lord is God himself. He's called Yahweh, the Lord, for example, in Joshua 5 and Judges 6, Zechariah 3. He's called God, for example, in Genesis 32 and Exodus 3. 
We've seen that the angel of the Lord exercises divine attributes. He exercises divine privileges and prerogatives. And we've seen that the angel of the Lord had these divine attributes and prerogatives. And yet the messenger, the angel of the Lord, is distinct from Yahweh, along with being Yahweh. He is distinct, showing the multiple persons of the triune God. And so there's the angel of the Lord, a very, very special, unique aspect of our old testament the lord jesus christ himself intervening in history all throughout the old testament so far in our study the angel of the lord has appeared in the bible to hagar the servant of abraham and abraham himself the angel of the lord we saw helped eleazar abraham's servant and he did that behind the scenes to find a wife for isaac he has appeared to jacob he appeared to moses he appeared to balaam the first unbeliever in the bible that the angel of the lord appears to And he appeared to Joshua. And we saw that appearance last time. You recall that the angel of the Lord appeared to Joshua, the new leader of Israel, right before the beginning of the conquest of Canaan, right before Israel was to take possession of the promised land and to begin living in the land as God's nation. They were to be what Exodus 19 calls a kingdom of priests to make God known to the world. God had commanded Israel to dispossess and destroy the Canaanites from what should become the land of Israel. We understand that this land was deeded to Israel through God's promise to Abraham. So the Canaanite tribes, by the way, referring to all the different nations living in Canaan, they were trespassers, they were illegal squatters on land that didn't belong to them. And in addition to this, the Canaanite sins of idolatry and sexual perversion and human sacrifice, they had rendered them ripe for the judgment of God, fully, fully deserving of God's justice. Israel was called by God then to be the instrument of God's justice in Canaan. And once Israel had completely taken the land per God's instruction, they were to live set-apart lives. They were to live holy lives before the world to be this kingdom of priests to demonstrate what living holy lives in an unholy world looks like, to demonstrate what living in faith in the true and living God looks like. Deuteronomy 28 lists the tremendous blessings that will be available to Israel if they would but obey God and live by faith in Him Listen to this utopic national blessing, Deuteronomy 28, beginning in verse 1. This is what they would get if they would obey. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing on you in your barns and in all that you undertake. And he will bless you in the land that the Lord your God has given you. The Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself as he has sworn to you. If you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. And all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord. 
and they shall be afraid of you. And the Lord will make you abound in prosperity in the fruit of your womb and in the fruit of your livestock and in the fruit of your ground within the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. The Lord will open to you his good treasury, the heavens, to give the rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hands. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And the Lord will make you the head and not the tail, and you shall only go up and not down if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, being careful to do them. And if you do not turn aside from any of the words that I command you today, to the right hand or to the left, to go after other gods to serve them. What a blessing. By the way, that is a description of the coming kingdom of Christ. What we ought to look forward to. And so the question here is, as we are on the cusp of the conquest of Canaan, would Israel obey God's commission to completely clean Canaan of the Canaanites? Sort of, but not really. That's kind of the conclusion of the book of Joshua. And we, we understand that from Joshua, but then really now we get to Judges chapter 2, and in Judges 2, we begin to see the outcome of what they did during the conquest. Now, while you're finding Judges 2, let me summarize Judges chapter 1, because what we're going to see is the slippery slope of compromise and of, of cutting corners. Judges 1, verses 3 through 21, Israel defeated the Canaanites at Jerusalem, at Hebron, and at Hormah. They captured Gaza, Ashkelon, and Ekron. Sounds pretty good. And they ran the Canaanites out of the hill country. But they didn't run the Canaanites out of the valleys, out of the plains, and the Canaanite allies, the Jebusites, were allowed to live. Verses 21 through 30, Israel defeated the Canaanites at Bethel, but they didn't fully dispossess them. And in fact, some Canaanites are allowed to live at a distance, and some are allowed to live even among the Israelites. Verses 33 through 30, 31 through 33 gives a list of the ways that the Israelites did not dispossess the Canaanites and that the Canaanites lived among them, that they left some of them there. And verses 34 through 36, the Israelite tribe of Dan is pushed back and they're told by the Canaanites where they can live and the Israelites are permitted to live at a distance. Did you catch that? At the beginning, the Israelites are permitting some of the Canaanites to live at a distance and by the time you get to the end of Judges 1, the Canaanites are permitting the Israelites to live at a distance. In fact, the immediate context here, verses 27 through 36, seven times. The narrative says they did not drive out the Canaanites, did not drive them out, did not drive them out, did not drive them out seven times. And you see the progression. Israel was not faithful to ultimately completely dispossess the Canaanites. And so they would be living in and among those who would be a terrible influence away from faithfulness to God. Terrible influence. And because of their unfaithfulness, Israel gets a visitor. And this is none other than the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord comes as a prosecuting attorney. He comes as the judge from heaven to hold court. And he sues Israel for breach of covenant, for covenant treachery. And that brings us to Judges chapter 2. We'll read the first five verses. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bacham. And he said, I brought you up from Egypt. 
and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bacham, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. I'd like to show you the evidence against Israel that the angel of the Lord brings, and we'll break that evidence into four parts. Part one of the evidence against Israel, God has been gracious. God has been gracious. This is how he begins his case God has been gracious. Before the angel of the Lord even speaks, we see the evidence of his graciousness in this opening geographic explanation. Now the angel of the Lord, verse 1, went up from Gilgal to Bacham. The text doesn't say what form the angel of the Lord took when he appeared to all of Israel, but the inference here is that he appears as a man, similar to the commander of the Lord's army, appearing to Joshua in Joshua 5. Why do we assume he appeared as a man? He traveled. He went from Gilgal to Bacham. Here's the big question, though. Why had the angel of the Lord been in Gilgal? Well, let's answer that here with some detail. Gilgal is on the site on the west bank of the Jordan River where Israel had crossed miraculously just before the conquest of Jericho, just a couple of miles from Jericho. It's not very far at all. Gilgal means circle of stones. The circle of stones, and this is a a tremendously important detail because there's a story behind the circle of stones. Joshua chapter 3, Joshua spoke to Israel on God's behalf. Beginning in verse 10, Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites, Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over you before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So what is happening here? God was promising that if Israel would merely obey him, he would drive out all the inhabitants of the land and the assurance will be that the the guarantee, the contract, the warranty that God is going to give this second generation of Israelites is I'm going to give you your own miniature Red Sea crossing just to show you I'm with you. And so the Jordan River would be piled up just like the Red Sea was. And so after the crossing of the Jordan, Israel created this stone monument, this circle of stones. Joshua 4 records that Joshua commanded that subsequent generations were to teach their children about this stone monument. Joshua 4, beginning in verse 6, when your children ask in the time to come, what do those stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. Listen to this. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. 
Now, why is this circle of stones so important? This stone monument at Gilgal, circle of stones, became the very first permanent structure in the promised land. The first sign that Israel had settled. The first time God places his mark on the land. And how long is that mark to be there? The intention was forever. That was the intent. In addition, Joshua 5 records then that at Gilgal, Israel circumcised all the males of the second generation according to command, and they celebrated Passover. In other words, they're getting ready to carry out God's mission. They're taking care of their religious duties. It was also at Gilgal that the manna that they had received for 40 years, the manna stopped falling from heaven. And why is this good news? This is good news because it says Israel was home, that they would now enjoy the produce of their own land. And in fact, during the conquest or the partial conquest of the promised land, Gilgal remained the military base for Israel during all the conquest. This was their hometown. Can I put it this way? Gilgal was the first capital of Israel. The tabernacle was set up here. Eventually, it was moved to Shiloh. This was long before Israel took final possession of Jerusalem under King David. But even after the tabernacle moved to Shiloh, Gilgal still retained its importance as as a primary place of offering sacrifice. 1 Samuel 10, 13, and 15, we see sacrifices being offered in Gilgal. It was one of the towns visited regularly by the prophet and judge Samuel. And in fact, Gilgal is the city in which Israel received their very first king, King Saul. Gilgal was still a major center of worship as late as the 8th century B.C., 500 years after the conquest. So back to my original question. Why had the angel of the Lord been at Gilgal? Because it was here at the center of the new life of Israel as a nation that Joshua 5 records before the conquest of Jericho. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked And behold, a man was standing before him and his drawn sword with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy And Joshua did so. So when Judges 2 says that the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal, what the narrative is saying is that the angel of the Lord came from the place God had established as Israel's first stronghold. The angel of the Lord came from the place where the very first structure ever was built in Israel. The angel of the Lord came from the place of this forever memorial circle of stones They gave testimony to God's faithfulness to Israel. The angel of the Lord came from the place where the manna stopped falling because Israel was home. The angel of the Lord came from the place that Israel reaffirmed her covenant commitments by circumcising the men and celebrating Passover. And the angel of the Lord came from the place where he had personally met with Joshua and assured him that the very armies of heaven would be with them when they conquered Jericho. And we saw on Christmas Eve when we looked at that text that that's exactly what happened, that the walls of Jericho were knocked down flat by the very armies of heaven. And so Gilgal is the place of God's graciousness. It is the place of God, the promise keeper. 
And the angel of the Lord in this first part of the evidence against Israel reminds them of just how gracious he has been to them. Verse 1, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bacham, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. God had been gracious to them in three ways. First of all, he rescued Israel from Egypt. He rescued Israel from Egypt. This is a clear reference here to the Exodus, to God miraculously leading Israel out of captivity. The second way he was gracious to them is he led them to the land which he had promised to Abraham 600 years earlier. 600 years. There's nobody around to even say, hey, I'm a witness to the fact that you told Abraham. Nobody knew except God. But he's a promise-keeping God. This goes all the way back to Genesis 12, all the way back to Genesis 15, where God promised this specific geographic plot of land to Abraham and to his physical descendants, and that's why it's called the promised land. It was promised to them. And he led them exactly to this land. And the third way God had been gracious, he reminds them, God promised never to break covenant with Israel. Now, this isn't speaking specifically of God's covenant with Israel made at Mount Sinai. This is more specific in this context to God's land covenant with Abraham, that his descendants would have a physical nation forever. When did God make this land promise to Abraham and to his descendants? He made it before they even existed. And by the way, he made this promise in full knowledge of their coming disobedience. And so his graciousness has been overwhelming. The first part of the evidence against Israel, God has been gracious. The second part of the evidence against Israel, God has given commands. God has given commands. Verse 2, God also told them, And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. Now, it's important for us to remember at this point that all the initiative to bless Israel was God's initiative. It was, it was his idea. It was his work. It was his power. Deuteronomy 7, verse 7 tells us, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. That's right, zero. That's the, you can't go fewer. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. And the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And so that's important because any commands that the Lord gives to them as a nation should have been received with joy. They should have been looking at each other and saying, we're part of the chosen nation. Of course we'll do anything, our God says. Now, why would making any covenants with the Canaanites be so bad? Why would that be a big deal? Well, because they would be agreeing to live side by side with the pagan idolatry that these nations represented. Remember God's command all the way back in Exodus 34, beginning in verse 11. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Ammonites, the Amorites, rather, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the, Hittite, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim. Those were poles that were used in, in pagan worship. For you shall worship no other god, 
For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you were invited, you eat of this sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. Let me translate this. If you tolerate the Canaanites, they will not become like you. You will become like them. We've already seen in Judges 1 that Israel conquered some Canaanites, but said to others, yeah, go ahead and be our next door neighbors. The second part of the evidence against Israel is God has given commands. The third part of the evidence against Israel, Israel disregarded God's commands. Israel disregarded God's commands. Verse 2. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. You have not obeyed my commands. Unlike the false gods of stone and wood and of all the other nations, the true and living God speaks. And he never left his people guessing as to his divine will. Never left them guessing. Deuteronomy chapter 4 beginning in verse 1. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and rules that I am teaching you and do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. By the way, does that sound familiar? Does that sound like the very end of the Bible, the book of Revelation? Do not add to or take away from these words because God's word is the only word, it is the only authority. There is no other spiritual authority. There is no other moral authority. God's word is it. Verse 3 of Deuteronomy 4, Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor. That was with Balaam and the, the battle that happened there. For the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, this is Moses speaking, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, and this is the point of Israel, the nation saying, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? This is exactly, by the way, what the Apostle Peter commanded us in 1 Peter. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. So that in the day that they slander you as evildoers, they may be ashamed and they may glorify God in the day of visitation because they say, look at this people that is so different than everyone else. It's the same concept. Salvation leads to sanctification. But what did Israel do? Instead, they disobeyed. And look what God, the angel of the Lord, says to them. At the end of verse two, and you can hear the emotion in this. What is this you have done? What is this you've done? God forces them to think back on their actions, on how they've heinously violated their covenant with God. 
And he stirs the collective conscience of Israel. He stirs them up. And now the relationship can't just magically stay the same. There are consequences. Israel has shown their disloyalty. They've shown their disregard for God. So what is God supposed to do? He has been perfectly gracious. He's given them commands. And Israel has disregarded God's commands. So what's he to do? In fact, that brings us to the fourth part of God's evidence against Israel. Not only has God been gracious, not only has God given commands, not only has Israel disregarded God's commands, the fourth part of God's evidence against Israel, God has already warned them in the past. God has already warned them in the past. This is not as if, you know, when you're a new parent and you forget to actually tell your children what your expectations are and you just get them in trouble before you told them what the rules are. And if a kid says, hey, that's not fair, you can kind of, well, yeah, I see your point. That's not the case here. God has already warned them in the past. God is able to rightly say, what is this you have done? And he can pierce their consciences with the knowledge of past warnings. Numbers 33, beginning in verse 35, or 55, rather, God says, but if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then those of them whom you let remain shall be as barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall trouble you in the land where you dwell, and I will do to you as I thought to do to them. And so what's going to happen now? What happens now is the discipline of the Lord. His warning will come true. Verse 3. So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their God shall be a snare to you. Exactly the warning that God gave in Numbers 33. And this shows the slow degradation of Israel because as a nation, they didn't live separate lives. They didn't live holy lives, but instead they left the Canaanites among them And so now the slow degradation of Israel is recorded in our Bible. It is the rest of the book of Judges. The book of Judges is so shocking, so immoral, so violent in its contents in the way Israel behaved themselves. When I was a little kid, my own dad suggested that maybe I shouldn't read the book of Judges until later in life. And I asked him why, and he had no explanation he said the book of judges is filled with violence is filled with immorality and i don't know why it's even in the bible in the first place he didn't know but we know we know that israel was reaping the consequences of of their choice to disregard god and so at this moment in this particular little snapshot of time what did israel do Verse 4, as soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of that place Bacham, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. They named the place Bacham. It means weepers. In fact, in Hebrew, it is the weeping. It's a shortened form of the place of weeping. And it's probably not really a geographic name so much as it's just a a description. That's the place where we wept when God rebuked us. And it seems that their repentance is genuine. They wept. They sacrificed to the Lord. Look down at verse 11. It's this big in your Bible. It's this far away. Verse 11. 
And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. And the result was, verse 15, whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. So what's the takeaway for us? The lesson here is not complex. Part one of the lesson, God has been gracious to you. God has been gracious to you. In Christ, he has given salvation from sin, which you didn't ask for. Ephesians 1 says he chose you in love. He was the sole and only initiator of your forgiveness, of your acceptance into the kingdom of Christ. It was him. It was all him. It was all his idea. It was him who called you. It was him who sent the Spirit of God to blow where he wishes and to change your heart and to give you a heart of repentance and of faith and trust. God has been gracious to you. The second part of our lesson, God has given commands. Is it not reasonable that the God who conquered your heart should then make a request that you obey him and follow him? Of course that's reasonable. He's given commands. Luke 3, verse 8. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. John 14, 15. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That is the word of God. John 14, 24. Jesus said, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. Romans 6, 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Paul asked the Galatians, the Galatian church in Galatians 5, 4 or 5, 7, rather, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Galatians 5, 25, if we live by the spirit, let us also keep in step with the spirit. The Philippians 2, 12, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, if you're saved, put your money where your mouth is and act like it. Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. 1 Peter 2, 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Hearkening back to the Old Testament, 1 Peter 1.15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. I read all those verses to you to make the simple point. Can God be any clearer? I don't think he can be any clearer. And so God does bring discipline. When we choose to not live by the Spirit, when we choose to not obey, when we choose to push back, when we choose to rebel, Sometimes in ways we're not even aware of. The Lord brings discipline. And he does it to all of us. If you are tempted to point your finger and say, God is disciplining you, just do this. Turn it back on yourself. He disciplines you for things that you don't even know. He shapes you. He carves on you. He cuts you in, for reasons he's not even going to tell you in ways that you're not even aware of. It comes in an endless variety of forms. I remember hearing one dad tell his little son, 
son, the ways that I can discipline you, the ways I can cause harm to your life are absolutely endless. And the son rightly said, okay, I give in. I, 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 I give up. But do you remember the good news where we started? My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father of the son in whom he delights. That his discipline is for your good. Now, why is this connected to Judges chapter 2? The angel of the Lord who has hammered down the verdict of guilty and that discipline is coming. Hard, harsh discipline. Why is this good news? How is this connected? The discipline of the Lord is for the good of his people. And in fact, Israel is proof of this both in the near term and in the far term, in the long term. In the near term, even in his discipline, even in his anger, God was accomplishing a bigger purpose for Israel. Did you know that? Look at Judges chapter 3. And in verse 1, we see this purpose. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them, that is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. Oh, God is using the discipline of letting the surrounding nations antagonize Israel to teach the next generations to trust the Lord, to make them stronger in the Lord as they would have to face battle after battle after battle. And so as the Lord disciplines you, it is to make you stronger. It is to give you more weapons for the next battle. But Israel is also proof that discipline is for our good in the long term. By the time Jesus was born, not only had Israel endured attacks and difficulties of the nations surrounding them, living among them, I mean, frankly, the the nation of Israel in the centuries to come could look back on the book of Judges and say, if only we could go back to the good old days of the book of Judges, because it just got worse living among them. But then by the time Jesus was born, by that time, the kingdom had split. Both the northern and southern kingdoms had been decimated by Assyria in 722 B.C. and then by Babylon in 586, 587 B.C., Those who weren't killed were carried off into captivity. A a little small remnant, maybe 50,000, returned beginning in the early 6th century B.C. only to live under another 500 years of turmoil in the land, including civil wars, invasions, and massacres. And in Jesus' day, Israel was now existing as a vassal state under the dominion and domination of Rome. In 70 AD, Rome destroyed Jerusalem, killing over a million Jews and enslaving about 60,000 of them. Do you know why we have a Colosseum in Rome? It is because of tens of thousands of Jewish slaves brought by Emperor Titus. Because of that event, in fact, the destruction of Jerusalem, which was a direct result, by the way, it was a direct discipline for the crucifixion of Christ. Jesus himself said this on the way of the cross. Because of that event, there are many theologians, many in the theological world who believe that at that point, God was permanently done with Israel, that he was done with them. And it would certainly seem so. Gilgal is basically unknown to the rest of the world. And in fact, today it's known as Kirbet al-Mafjar. And what it's famous for has nothing to do with God 
what it's famous for is being the location of a famous palace of an Islamic leader in the 8th century. But somewhere, at least in the mind of God, there is a Gilgal. There is a circle of stones. When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And when it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. Fast forward to Acts chapter 1. Mere moments before the ascension of Christ into heaven. The very last conversation that the apostles have with Jesus Christ on this earth. They gave Jesus the perfect opportunity to let them know that he was done with Israel Because of Israel's unfaithfulness. They gave the perfect setup. Acts 1 verse 6. So when they had come together they asked him. Lord will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? If God is done with Israel. What would Jesus would say. What would he say then? Logically he would have to say never. But instead. He said to them. It is not for you to know times or seasons. That the father has fixed by his own authority. Jesus could have said, I am done with Israel. They crucified me. Instead, when asked when the kingdom of Israel will be reestablished, he merely said, I'm not going to tell you. That's our father's business. That's what he said. Earlier in his ministry, Jesus Christ, remember, formerly known as the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, he told the apostles in Matthew 19, verse 28, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of what? Israel. God gave a Gilgal. He gave a circle of stones to be a memorial forever. And He meant it. And he's given you and me a Gilgal. He's given us a circle of stones, so to speak, a memorial to God's faithfulness to you. But it's not in stones, it's made of words. Jesus said in John 10, 27 and 28, here's our Gilgal. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. So yes, you will receive the discipline of the Lord. You're sinners. You fail. And sometimes for reasons that God will not feel obligated to explain to you, he simply brings trials and hardships. And he simply says, trust me. And we don't act like our, our, our charismatic brethren who would say, well, but the trial will end somewhere in this lifetime. No, it might not. You might die and your last thought is, Really? That might be your last thought on this earth. But that's okay. Because God is forming you into the image of Christ. He is making you like himself. He has given you a Gilgal. He has given you a memorial. A circle of stones made of words. And so as you go through whatever it is you're going through. Let's end where we began. Hebrews 12. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you were left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. 
Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good. Listen to this. That we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. In other words, so that you may become more and more like Christ. And as the New Testament says, he'll finish the job for when we see him, we will become like him. And then the process will be done. And so in the meantime, when you wake up and you know that your life is plastered with difficulties and you feel as though the Lord has announced coming discipline in your life, embrace it. Let it be okay because he is treating you as his child. I hope that's encouraging to you. It's encouraging to me. Let's pray for a moment. Our Father, the angel of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, has sworn an oath that not only will he conform us to his own image, not only will he make us like himself, but he will complete that process. He will sanctify us completely. He will bring us home. He will not let anything or anyone snatch us out of his hand. Lord, I pray for those among us who are in pain, who are sensing the heavy hand of God upon them, who are sensing the the pain of discipline, who are sensing the, the anguish of trials and turmoil. I pray, Lord, that you would give them courage to look up, to look to their God, who is not angered with them. That anger was poured out onto Christ at the cross, but rather in love and in graciousness, you are forming us into the image of Christ. Help us, Lord, to embrace that. Help us to receive it. Help us to be okay with it, to walk day by day, seeking after you, seeking your comfort, seeking your love, and certainly seeking to obey. Help us to learn that which you would have us to learn. Help us, Lord, when the stinging swats of our great God have stopped hurting quite so much. Help us, Lord, as we wipe our tears away to obey and to remember the lessons that you have taught so that we might please and honor you. You have entered into covenant with us, and our covenant joy and privilege is to obey. Might we be characterized as a people who are set apart, who are holy, who are different, that the world might see that we are the salt and the light given by God because we emulate and imitate our Savior. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.